Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is NLP Logic's Modeling and Analytics Lead and Data Scientist, Katie Bakewell. NLP Logics is a fast-growing AI services firm based in Florida that serves both the public and private sectors. Katie joins us on the program to discuss the data science lifecycle and what business leaders can do to avoid challenges in model development. Today is the first in a special series of episodes sponsored by NLP Logic. Stay tuned for future guests on the program, including fellow modeling and analytics lead Ben Webster talking about topic search, as well as CFO and COO Fallon Gorman offering advice on AI adoption. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Katie. Katie, thank you so much for being with us on the program today. Uh, Thanks so much, Matt, for having me. I'm really excited. So diving right in, what are the most important challenges that business leaders are facing today in developing bespoke models? We see this, it looks like it's going to turn into kind of an ecosystem where everybody, you know, might have their own language model, their own model for how they analyze their data back end. But the point is everyone will have their own and it'll be specific to them. And that that's probably going to lead us to some inefficiencies. Yeah, one of the big things that that I've seen over doing this for 10 years is people want to start with the solution that's going to go into production. And I think you really run into a lot of problems when you try and approach it from, hey, I would like a bespoke model and try to just go straight to that without going through the process of discovery. I think when you look at things like the SLDC, you know, everybody's familiar with it. You start from the beginning, you design it, and then you're ready to go and you've got your plan to get into production. And when you look at machine learning models specifically, there's so much more that goes into it because there's a lot of unknowns in the beginning. There's knowing whether or not your data is going to fit the solution. And I think the idea of having a breakdown of starting with something like a proof of concept or a time box to R&D is really helpful in allowing somebody to, to actually figure out what they're trying to solve, make sure that they have the data and the signal to do it, rather than you know getting three quarters of the way in, figuring out the signal's not there, and you're not going to be able to build that model. Right, right, right. So take us through at least, at least how this misfire might look to a business leader from the get-go? What are some of the telltale signs that this is just not a road you want to go down in terms of of building the rest of that bespoke model? Well, I think there's a lot where people don't come into this knowing what the metrics that they expect are. So Mm -hmm. not understanding from the beginning that this is the measure that I'm trying to target. And then getting into the process and finding that there's not the signal there to be able to target that model. You know, I think you can go and say, hey, I've got this expectation that I'm going to have, you know, let's say an accuracy of 80% if I'm trying to measure using accuracy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's chances that that, that 80% is not going to happen and it could be a lack of data. It could just be a lack of signal. But I think it's really important to be able to allow business leaders to be able to see the process as it's going through and have some of those early out points where you can say, hey, let's pause. Mm-hmm. Let's reevaluate what we're doing and and make sure that we're gonna develop this the correct way. I think, you know, if you if I look at what we did 
five years ago, it would be, I'm going to go and sit and build a model and, you know, the accuracy, I want it to be at 80, but it's actually at right. 74. And that's going to be me for a weekend going, what can I tweak? What can I change? Can I change the model type? Can I add, you know, a couple different parameters? Or, right. It, yeah. it kind of encourages this this mentality of if I just make one more paintbrush stroke, that'll complete the picture when that's kind of symptomatic of not really having the focus that you need to actually make these these models live up to their potential. So much of that has to do with treating AI as business critical or a, a technology that is best used with your critical business operations and strategies, not, you know, some ancillary task for the business where it can be experimental and, and can break. That's kind of like the push and pull or, or at least the risk with AI. You need to trust it with something important. You also need it not to break things. How do business leaders strike that balance, especially in light of what you guys call the data science life cycle? I know a few folks, you know, in this vendor space or at least vendors in this area, we'll, we'll talk about things like, you know, cradle to the grave in terms of tech and, and, and data stacks. How do, you, how do you look at this differently, especially for how businesses have to transition technology? So I think what, what we've looked at is to really break it down, break the process down into an initial phase where that design might be a project where it's just one step in the software development lifecycle. In the data science lifecycle, I think the initial project being something where we're going through and doing that R&D, going through and doing mm -hmm. a proof of concept and, you know, doing the initial analysis, you know, you've got a data set. The first thing you should be doing is looking at that data, not trying to build the model and taking that initial step and then going through once you have that proof of concept, once we all agree that signals there building out the model itself, making sure there's no gotchas there, doing the additional design work there, and then finally moving into production and then going to support and maintenance. I think it's really important to do that. And it gives business leaders the ability to sort of step in and put a toe in the water. If you're especially if it's that business critical piece where you can say, let's see what this is going to look like and let's really sort of step lightly into this process rather than just trying to go in swinging it allows you to to really build a model that's going to perform the way you expect it. And you're not going to mm -hmm. have that shock where it gets out of the lab and suddenly your business critical process isn't working anymore. Right, right, right. We've introduced the data science life cycle. I know there might be a lot to it. And I know, especially in your last answer, we focused on the importance of the beginning. But I just want to get a sense of the entire life cycle. So we have R&D up front. We have, you know, everything you just mentioned in terms of the initial steps that that we want to get right. What does the rest of the life cycle look like and, and what needs to stand out from the beginning for, for business leaders in order to get there? Yeah, so for us, it starts out with, with that POC and then it goes into a phase where we're, we're doing the model building. We're doing that tweaking where we're saying, you know, we might, build, we might do a proof of concept on, on a small subset of the data on a sample and then mm -hmm. go through the steps to do this on the full data set. Let's make sure that when we get out of the, the truly R&D lab and get into sort of the big lab, we're still seeing that signal working. And then once we have that going into the steps of production, and I think sort of those things happen in tandem where we're doing that build of the complete model and then doing the architecture of how do we get this into production. Right. And then the step of actually going into production and then having a plan when we're going into production of well, how are we measuring it? You know, I think the worst thing that we could do as an AI company is release something that we're not able to measure, that we're not right. able to understand. I don't want somebody to come back and tell me, 
hey, your model's not working. I need to make sure that based on that architecture, I can come back and say, hey, pause, this model's not looking the way it's supposed to. And we have that sort of early warning system built in through, you know, things like Azure Alerts. You know, there's insights in there that we can put in the code that let us do model health right from the get-go rather than waiting six months and going, hey, it turns out this didn't work. Right. For, you know, business critical operations and capacities that are totally in-house, this makes this makes a lot of sense. I know, you know, folks in the serve sector, you know, looking to update their legacy systems, this, this, you know, they probably are hearing a lot of value in here. But I also want to talk about the capacities, you know, for, for these capabilities in, you know, in being able to tap into external data sources and how that is a challenge for business leaders, you know, building bespoke models. Tell us a little bit about at least trying to build models where it's gathering data from the out, from outside the organization and like kind of the challenges in, in building those kinds of models. Yeah, one of the big industries that I've focused on in the past is looking at the debt collection industry and, you know, looking at something that can, can compete with a credit score. You know, they need to be able to figure out who should I be trying to get on the phone. And a credit score does a really good job of measuring who can pay. What we're actually trying to measure is who will pay. And the problem is the credit scores, they have so much access to data about that consumer and being able to try and pull in external factors. So understanding based on, you know, the demographic information we have about the consumer, their address, things like that, we can pull in, you know, what's their estimated income? We can pull in what's their estimated housing payment. You know, if you make $100,000 in Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. That's a whole lot different than making $100,000 in Jacksonville, Florida. So being able to estimate things like disposable income is really helpful in those models, but it means that we have to be able to go out and get that data and keep it up to date. You know, one of the things that we started bringing in when, when COVID was happening is looking at unemployment numbers and, you know, the unemployment number from a year ago, it, you know, historically that was great, but then when you get into this process where that's changing week on week, you know, that's super right. important. But being able to build your architecture in such a way that, that those external data sources, you're able to pull them and you're able to keep them fresh. Right. Is so, is that is that like a, a real time technology or, or is that a consideration that you'll have to build into the beginning of the project in order to, if it's something where you want the data from this model in real time, or you want that capacity, what are the considerations that you need to have up front? You know, I think it's one of those things that you can always go back in and add it again, like with the debt collection stuff, unemployment numbers didn't mm-hmm. need to be, you know, fresh in real time for years. We were able to build it based on the American Community Survey, update it yearly, and then, you know, do some testing. But then as COVID happens, you get these sort of shocks to the system. You have to be able to build it in. What I do think is important to note is if you think that's going to be a a necessary feature in the future, that you sort of build it from the beginning. Because I think you've got the choice of, you know, if I was going to build a car, we can build Mm -hmm. a car. But if I knew that car needed to be four-wheel drive, it'd be a lot easier to start by building a four-wheel drive car than to build a, you know, rear-wheel drive car and go, well, I guess we got to figure out how to connect those front wheels. So, you know, right. knowing from the beginning is super helpful. Of course, of course. And where we look at models that are already established, 
in that are already kind of in progress. How do we help, say, a model that has gotten off on the wrong track? I mean, what are some of the warning signs? So, you know, we do a lot of, on our side, at least with model health, by going in and, and measuring what are the things that are changing. So I think in that process of building, when you're building that complete model, to build in those metrics to understand, you know, not just the hey, the performance itself isn't working the way that I think it is. But hey, I'm starting to see shifts when I look at, you know, the data that's coming in, you know, going back to debt collection, there might be something that, hey, the balances are really starting to to change a little bit, or we're starting to see changes in this individual feature. Mm -hmm. By seeing those things early, you're really sort of getting the, the canary in the coal mine for the model starting to change. So by by going and building the process of the, you know, hey, I'm going to build this machine learning model, but from the beginning, I know there's going to be things that change. And I know there's things I want to measure. If you track those early, then we're much better equipped to be able to solve that problem in the future, to be Mm -hmm. able to see that the model is sort of going awry. And then, you know, with those sort of canaries in the coal mine, you're able to go and say, this is the feature that I want to take a look at. I'm going to be able to do that analysis a lot faster and then understand how to retrain a lot quicker. And that gets us back on the righted course in a much faster way than you sort of traditionally would. Right, right. In your last answer, I don't know if this comes from experience and feel free to go into that example, but you mentioned how, you know, the circumstances can change underneath and that can be a reason that the model is off. I'm almost wondering, you know, like more, I was kind of going into that last question thinking of, you know, what if the model's wrong from the begin with, you know, without underlying changes. But what are some of the underlying changes we can stick to the the debt collection example, if you'd like? You know, what are some of the changes that can ha- happen underneath a model that can kind of render it obsolete? Well, so I think that there's two ways that that goes. There's one, you know, things are truly changing in, in the data that's being received, the data that's being passed to the model. If it doesn't look like the data that the model was trained on, eventually that model is just not going to work. If your training data doesn't match alongside your actual data that's happening in real time, eventually that model is going to slip. But then the other side is there's things, you know, and debt collection is a really good example of this. There's market conditions that really sort of change the game. And, you know, going back to the unemployment example, up until COVID, high unemployment was indicative of a lower likelihood to pay. But then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we had this scenario where unemployment, you know, was that additional, I think it was $600 a week. Yeah. People who were on unemployment were suddenly a little bit flush with cash and they were able to say, you know, hey, let me make a payment. So you're able to look at these models and say that feature that worked this way, based on market conditions, it's actually changed. That The mm-hmm. influence of that feature itself has changed the way that it reacts with the actual Y variable that we're trying to predict. Right, right, right. And, you know, we were talking about external, you know, external data sources before. I mean, how how far away are we from being able to build models that maybe maybe anticipate, you know, some of those changes? If it's if it's something that is, you know, being able to detect when folks are flush with cash or like, you know, those kinds of payments being set or yeah, I'm just kind of, you know, pulling from other spaces where I've talked to folks that are, you know, building AI to detect media stories or mm-hmm. even being able to read, you know, that that a certain government payment is coming. You can kind of see how, you know, these technologies are going to interact in the future. On that note, 
I, I just I'm curious to know what what you think model development will look like in the next couple of years, especially it seems like we're before people really realize that this might be a problem. Like, you know, they're just dipping their toe into, you know, getting started with models. They don't know, you know, that it can become bespoke and, and, and kind of go off on, on, on these tangents. But I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think model development will look like in the, in the next few years as folks catch up? I think one of the really exciting things, and this is sort of, you know, hip with the times i guess is you know everybody's talking about chat gpt now everybody's Mm. a lot more concerned about their unstructured data which is great and the advent of transformers i think is really going to be influential you know it was in the past that bespoke model really meant you had to have years of data you had to have the ability to go back and look at you know a ton of data versus these transformer models where there is a large language model that's built and you're able to fine tune on top of that. So I think a lot of where development is headed is no longer building that model from scratch. It's starting with what is what is that initial model that we can use mm-hmm. and really fine tuning. So you get the benefit of the big situation and then yeah. the ability to really drill down into your space as well. Yeah, it, it it does seem like we're right on the horizon of there being kind of like a model. Mar- we're already there as with yeah. so much in AI that there is this, you know, bespoke model market. But I think we're going to start to see it become apparent, you know, in the next few years, maybe maybe some commercials in airports to advertise to executives or something <laughs> of, of you know, you need you need this large language model to operate your legal legal firm. That's that's something we're right on the cusp of, and I think I think it's going to be really interesting going into that future. Thanks for taking a look into that future with me today, Katie. I really appreciate you being on the program. Of course. Thank you so much for your time. And before we close out today's episode, just a quick note on the bespoke model ecosystem we've been talking about over a few of the past episodes and how this is a bit on the horizon, kind of in that limbic space where some folks are really already dealing in a market where there are bespoke models. And that's the whole point. The industries are based and the organizations themselves are built around having data being consumed in a very and processed in a very, very specific way. But I really feel as though we're only on the cusp of what this market's going to look like in another five years. I think the difference is maybe what we've seen writ large with AI five years ago when it was a little bit more of a niche topic for tech enthusiasts and folks in Silicon Valley. And now it has totally hit this cultural zeitgeist and it's inescapable all the way from your grandma to your kids at school. It's really, really an interesting time. And I think we'll be seeing something very similar happen with the market for bespoke models. So hopefully this conversation grows in importance as well with that trend. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast.